It's been a long year, but hopefully You Are Not A Frog has been a bit of light relief for you and given you some helpful hints and tips to make life at work that little bit better. We've loved every single one of our guests this year and judging by the volume of wonderful emails we've received and the conversations I've had with people at talks and workshops, so have you. So I thought I'd put together the best bits from some of my favourite conversations this year and some of the most listened to episodes. And we'll be back in the new year with more interviews, hints, tips and life hacks to help you beat burnout and work happier. This is The Best Bits Part 1, the one about self-confidence. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress, high-stakes jobs. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back. And that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. First, we've got episode 110 with Dr. Karen Forshaw and Chrissy Mowbray talking about how to stop people pleasing and absorbing other people's angst. If how you feel is dependent on somebody else, then you have no power over your own feelings, which therefore means that you are at the mercy. So, so you can be as nice as you like, and we all have seen this with patients, haven't we? In fact, it's the patients that you often feel like you've gone out of your way for are the ones that tend to complain. So, so you could do whatever you like, but if that person still chooses to think that you're not good enough, is that how you want to be? Do you want your, your kind of feelings of self-worth to be defined by other people? Or do you want to define them for yourselves? Do you want to say, do you know what? I know that I did the right thing in that consultation. I, you know, used my skills and I shared knowledge and I was kind, um, I was compassionate to that patient, full stop. And that's why when you get a complaint, if you know that you did the right thing, you're not bothered by it at all. It's only if you actually think that you probably didn't do what you should have done that you feel bothered by complaints, in my experience. Having had complaints, yes, haven't <laughs> we all? Up. <laughs> haven't we all? I think the thing that bugs me about that is that. Yeah, you get a complaint. Oh, you look back through the notes thinking, right, what did I do? What did I do? Oh, oh, thank God I did the right thing. Oh, you talk to someone else and they go, yeah, I probably did. But, you know, sometimes you don't do the right thing, right? And you just get it wrong for absolutely no reason at all because you just got distracted or you were tired or we all make mistakes. I remember that the practice pharmacist coming up to me saying, Rachel, did you mean to prescribe 280 diazepam? I was like, no, I did not. <laughs> Let's just change that prescription, shall we? You know, literally finger slipped when typing it. Yeah, so we all do things. And so we need to be okay when we've made a mistake and get complaint. And it is our fault. There's a sort of a bit of a British thing about being sorry I have patients who apologize just for getting on the couch or you know or for bumping people who apologize when they bump into you and we talk about saying sorry when we're actually responsible for something that's gone wrong so when you've made a mistake with with a patient and they complain I think if you have made a mistake it's perfectly okay to say that was actually my fault and I am sorry but I think we are also in danger of saying sorry when as Karen said, a consultation has gone well and we've done everything that we could possibly do and we know that that patient is disgruntled. Whatever we would have done, it would have been the same outcome and there are other ways to handle that. We can say, you know, it's unfortunate that you feel 
that that you haven't had a good service without saying I'm sorry and taking responsibility that for something that that is not your fault or that that didn't particularly go wrong by the way that you see it so I think I think it's all about being conscious with your responses and and asking yourself when you're saying sorry or when you're saying when you're being accountable for something do I really mean that am I accountable am I sorry for what happened there or do I feel it was a good service but it's unfortunate that they don't and can we explore how they would have you know how they would have liked it to have gone I guess Chrissy hearing you say it's unfortunate that it immediately makes me think actually if someone said to me oh, it's unfortunate that you feel that way I'd get a bit annoyed because I think mm, that this is just being fobbed off but is it ever okay to say I am really sorry that you feel that way because you can be genuinely sorry that someone feels that without being sorry about what actually happened does that make sense I think you can yeah but I think we use the phrase I'm sorry without but, thinking about it so basically oh, yes. when you yeah. say I'm sorry but yeah. it basically means you're not sorry at all doesn't <laughs> sorry it? not yeah. sorry yeah so so actually let's think maybe try and think of a different way of doing that the last time I got a complaint I actually said thank you for your letter and and that made me feel quite good and because I thought actually I am really because this lady's pointing out something that is highlighting that I'm a bit unorganized actually and probably ought to sort that out really so I'd started it off with saying thank you for your letter and actually I think that really sets the tone I wasn't saying sorry and I didn't particularly say sorry in the letter I just, but, but, but I started it off and, and it, as Chrissy said, that's about your intention. It's about the intention that you have when you say it and saying, I'm sorry, but means you're not sorry. So, mm-hmm. so think about, think about what you're saying. Think about what your words really mean and think about the intention behind them. And also there's lots to think about. Also think about why is this triggering you? What core belief, what negative core belief is it poking at? Because that's the universe saying Here's another opportunity for you to grow, for you to actually change the way that you think about yourself internally. So it's win-win, really. <laughs> yeah, it's that's a really interesting observation because <clears throat> my observation is when the media are criticizing doctors and they're saying, you're not working, you're not seeing patients face to face. And, you know, looking at it, I'm thinking, why are people reacting so badly? Because we know it's not true. I mean, it's obviously not true and I told this story so many times you know one of my colleagues you know Hussein Gandhi literally just finished examining a patient patient is putting on his jacket patient turns around and says so when are you going to open doctor it's like it's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious isn't Last it? Bonkers. We had, yeah we had exactly this on a course that we ran recently didn't we and basically the first thing that somebody said was oh it's really awful in the press I just laughed and I said but we know that's not true don't we yeah. And actually, we know that. So why are we bothered about what other people think? Yeah. And, and it's right. So I think what you're saying, yeah, exactly. Like if someone came up to me in the middle of the street and said to me, or you, you're rubbish at what you do. You're a rubbish coach or you're a rubbish trainer. And they'd never met me before. They hadn't seen it. I'd just laugh because I think yeah. you have no idea. If someone yeah. had been on one of my courses came up and said, <laughs> you're really not very good. That I'd, I'd really take that to heart. So, yeah, yeah well, it's the same with the person. general public you know if they, if they they're coming up to you and saying actually you're 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 useless and you're not seeing patients face to face we are and so yeah. the problem <laughs> is what it's doing the reason why we're getting upset about it is because it's hitting that raw nerve that's going maybe i'm not doing enough maybe i'm not good enough maybe we we, we can't provide the service we can and this is back to your locus of control because i think health practitioners take on too much responsibility so we're feeling dreadfully responsible for the health of the nation what well, that that's completely out of our control and what's happens out of control but it's, it hits a raw nerve when they criticize us because we know we couldn't do anything about it but we get very defensive because deep down we're telling ourselves we should have done yeah is that right i think so but again that's that's and it's triggering core beliefs isn't it if you think about us as doctors we are fixers aren't we we like to think that we can make people better and actually, really, maybe we ought to move away from that. This is pushing us towards our compassion versus empathy argument. So actually, should we be taking responsibility for how our patients feel? Should we be absorbing their pain and their anxiety all of the time? And, and we agree, no, we sh- absolutely shouldn't be because that's really bad for us. When we think about horrible things happening or imagine how somebody tried to imagine how somebody felt when that happened, in fact, we will have a release of stress hormones in our own bodies because remembered events 
trigger a same same kind of flight fight response in us and if you're doing that 10 20 times a day when you're talking to people who are upset or anxious then you will at the end of that be drained and you will have high levels of cortisol and high levels of adrenaline in your system which is not a good way to work and it's really unhealthy for us Here's Dr. Sarah Golding from episode 112 talking about why we're ditching the term imposter syndrome. We're often perfectionists when we're in these high stress jobs. And so we will be incredibly hard on ourselves. There's a lot of critical self chatter and we may be falsely extrapolating. Okay, well, I perceive that something I did at this time didn't go well. Therefore, that means I'm never going to be good at anything or or my parents held me to a very high standard of education. That's how I ended up being a medic. Therefore, I have to keep pushing myself because unless I do, I'm not worthy of praise. So there, are, it's just a very complex area. And also, there's, so that's the internal stuff. And then I think it's really important to look at the external. And I think we both acknowledge, you know, we're both white, middle-class, cis-het women, from a position of privilege. And we will look around us and see a lot of people like us, not as many as men as we see, but there are lots of other people who will not see people like them around them. And there are systems that are not set up for them to succeed in. So in a very real way, they may not feel that they are the right fit for the job because they can't see anybody else like them doing it yet. That's such a good point. I remember reading an article, I think it was in the Harvard Business Review. I think I think I shared it with you, Sarah, written by a black woman. And it was stop telling me I have imposter syndrome <laughs> when everything in this workplace is set up to tell me that I'm not good enough or to put barriers in my way. But I'm told the problem lies with me. And that was a really powerful article. Yeah, I, I think this is where it's really key if somebody feels that they identify with the title imposter syndrome. And I know it's really common whenever I've put polls on my Instagram about it or ask friends, they say, oh, yeah, of course. Almost like it's a badge of honor. But who's given you that label? Is it you or has it come externally? And actually, it has more of a toxic connotation and that it suits other people to put you in that box because it makes you feel unworthy and therefore that's an advantage to an organization or, a, or another person. Yeah, because if you could just say to someone, well, it, it's you, you know, Sarah, if you just had a little bit more self-confidence in your mm. own ability, then actually, you know, probably you'd be performing better and you'd be able to sort these issues out with your team. <laughs> no, meanwhile, the team is like half of their members have left because of stress and everyone's infighting and then there's toxic management. But Sarah, I think you've got imposter syndrome here and you just need to sort yourself out. Yeah, I hear that so much, certainly in my mentoring role, young salary GPs who are told, well, oh, well, everybody else is fine. Maybe maybe it's you. And when you actually go deeper into what's going on in the organization and how they're valuing people, the quality of the conversations they're having, how people perceive themselves to be valued and what that shows up as, there's a whole set of other things going on. And, and it's in the practice's best interest to have other people feeling that it's them. So it's not imposter syndrome, it's gaslighting. Yeah, absolutely. And that situation, I would strongly agree. Yeah. And it's just so difficult to separate out because you've in that practice that you've just, you know, talked about very, very common scenario. It's probably a bit of both. The system is not set up. And also that that new portfolio GP has got some self-doubt and is maybe a bit more reticent and worried because of stuff that's happened in the past because when they've tried to speak up they've been quashed they've been told like you said everybody else can manage it so you do start to doubt your own ability and doubting your own ability is almost a normal part of being human I think so we're then pathologizing a sort of normal psychological process. Absolutely. And actually, let's let's be honest, sometimes there are advantages to feeling, you know, that you're not quite good enough. It can really spur you on. It can make you do work harder, try harder. You can 
do things that feel uncomfortable. So it may have pushed us through quite a lot of difficult situations in the past. Um, you know, does it make you focus more or putting you into an uncomfortable situation that because you're, you're expecting, okay, well, that's what I have to go through. You're tolerating more discomfort than perhaps some might feel comfortable with. So sometimes there's an advantage, but I'd, I'd rebadge it as self-doubt or, you know, understandable worries about a new situation. And I think what we were talking about before is this concept of growth mindset. I'm not there yet. But when you speak to leaders, you know, Beyonce has to go on stage with an alter ego, Sasha Fierce, because even Beyonce doesn't feel enough as herself. So these incredible people, everybody will say, I have elements of doubt. So you're othering yourself by saying, I'm pretty sure it's just me. And I think that's where connections and speaking to other people can be so helpful in terms of not normalizing it, but maybe just, you know, ripping that plaster off and going, it's not that, it's something else. And what can, what can be done about it? Yeah, it's just sort of recalibrating the way we think about ourselves, isn't it? Because you obviously don't want to think too much of yourself. <laughs> and particularly in Britain, we, we don't like show offs, do we? We don't like people that think they are amazing, that are boasting about stuff that can't ever learn anything because they think they're always right. I mean, that is, that is not good. But nor is it good to be that person who's so self-obsessed that they won't ever do anything or put themselves out because what might people think about me or what if I fail? And I think that's another side of the same coin in terms of self-obsession. And neither is, neither is right, but I think it's bad to be self-obsessed in that really sort of proud, I'm amazing way. But I think it's almost pretty bad to be really self-obsessed and that oh I can't possibly fail and what will people think because mm. then you're just not giving yourself to other people in the way that you should be the world can't use your unique skills and abilities and it's completely paralyzing I think it's so common and I think I know we talked before about burnout and how actually when you really identify I am my career I am a doctor and you believe the you know martyrdom you receive and you staple onto your shoulders the cape of heroism that you then build up your own inner story about what that means and what that has to look like and it's often reinforced you know as a mum at the school gates in the past I've had people going oh well come on Sarah can you tell me about this even though I'm in mum duty or calling me for a problem when I'm not on call. I'm not on call for the whole world. You know, I'm a mum, I'm a wife, I'm a friend, I'm a mother. I think it, we need to be, we need to have a filter, a healthy filter through which we decide what external messages really mean for us. But also crucially, and this is what I'm really passionate about with my coaching and mentoring, is helping people look at what, what really is important to them because helping them look at the consequences. Okay, so if you have to be perfect all the time, what is realistic about that? And what does it mean if, heaven forbid, you are not perfect? What then? What does that mean about your self-esteem? And helping them really get to terms with what that means, because I think sometimes, again, we can take perfectionism on as a as a badge of pride, oh, I'm a, is that classic thing in an interview? What are your faults? Oh, I'm a perfectionist. It's, a, it's one yes. of the ones that's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm so you know. bad because I do everything to such high level that, yeah. you know, it's a real fault of mine that I'm just <laughs> so yeah. damn brilliant, actually. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas those people can be the hardest to work with because they can crystallize themselves into this image and actually be a bit judgy of others. But actually, we are just human beings and we are going to do our best and we are allowed to grow and evolve and change. And goodness me, haven't we changed a lot and had to grow in the last couple of years? Um, and actually, I think that's really healthy. And I know there have been some incredibly hard times and identifying as a doctor is a big risk factor for burnout. 
but so is perfectionism and it's it's reminding yourself that it it ain't all good yeah so I'm just writing my own new definition of imposter syndrome let me try it out with you Sarah this might be completely wrong rather than it being about this this belief that we're going to be found out at any point that we're not quite as good as we're telling other people we are or you know actually imposter syndrome is more like an unhealthy belief that you need to be perfect in all situations and that it's not okay to fail at anything. Oh, I love that one. I'm not very good at coming up with a pithy definition because equally I would change that into something about something in an internal fixed unhealthy belief and more along the perfectionism Mm. bit or an externally given label somewhere along the lines of being in a toxic culture or you know you being in a minority I'd want to pay tribute to the external factors too yeah so it's either an unhealthy internal belief that you've got to be perfect or an Mm. unhealthy external label label from a toxic culture to absolve them of any blame whatsoever yes I like that Mm. Next, we've got an extract from Dr. Maddie Dumont in episode 115, how to find peace and happiness even in a life you haven't chosen. She's talking about her battle with long COVID. I think at the kind of three to four week mark, I was really beginning to panic at that stage, kind of thinking, oh my God, what's happening to me? Why is this happening? And bear in mind that at the time we had no experience of this whatsoever. It, you know, I was really the first wave of people in the UK that had got it and were having any kind of prolonged syndrome. So that was very scary at that time. And I think I doubted myself over and over again, kind of, am I making this up? Am I doing something that is, is making this happen? You know, why, why is this happening? What can I do to get better I just couldn't believe all of this my husband's a psychiatrist and he kept saying to me over and over again Maddie you are not making yourself ill you can't make fevers up and you can't (laughs) and I was like I know but how do I make myself better it's crazy (laughs) isn't it side note what is it about doctors that we never (laughs) believe our bodies and we blame ourselves for getting ill like you would never have a patient in front of you and go well I know you're, you know, you've got absolutely no energy and you've got depression. Do you think that might be completely your fault? And do you think you might be completely making that up? Or, you know, you've, you've got absolutely dreadful shoulder pain or you've broken your leg. Really? I mean, is it really that you can't walk on it? What, what if you were just a little bit stronger? And, you know, I get so frustrated about the way that healthcare professionals just deny what is happening in their body because they yeah. feel it's a personal slight on them or it 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 could be conceived as a character flaw to be ill that is exactly how I felt at the time and that I was kind of weak by letting people down and you know I was letting people down and I couldn't yeah all sorts of really unhelpful thoughts were happening at that stage I have to say (laughs) I get it You'll push for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz so i'd like to go on here a little bit more but first of all what what has happened to us that's got us into that state of 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 feeling that we're weak if we're ill i don't know i think I mean, this could lead to a really big discussion, couldn't it, about medicine and and the kind of thought processes that go through it and the cultural change that has happened. But I think there is something in there about the responsibility that we take on as medics. You know, we go to university and they t- tell us 
you can't behave like other students because you're going to be doctors. And so this, you know, you have to be better than them. You have to be stronger than them. You don't have, you know, you do not go out getting drunk. You don't need it. Of course, we all ignore a lot of that. But we, you know, it's put into our head immediately that you are different and you have to behave differently. The rules of normal society don't apply to us. And I think that goes through certainly through my training, which was at the, you know, roughly the same time as this is going to hurt, which has been on recently and was scarily appropriate in terms of the experiences we had going through that. You know, there certainly when we were training, there wasn't time to be ill and there wasn't, you know, you were encouraged to, to go in and carry on whatever, unless you were literally couldn't stop being sick or, you know. And I remember my registrar on my first ward job saying to me, you know, you have two weeks, you can mess it up in the first two weeks and I will cover for you. After that, you're on your own. And I think it's that kind of culture that may, <laughs> that grows us into these people that, that stops us being humans. I'll totally agree. And I, I think we're going to have to do an entire, another entire podcast episode on this is going to hurt because yes, yes, I watched the first yes. episode the other day with my partner. I was just like, yep, that's what happened. Yep. Yeah. And my friends keep saying, oh, come on. I mean, it must be exaggerated. Nope. I mean, obviously they, they cram all the bad bits into one episode, but you know, totally. And you can just remember those days. And I think we're yeah. all sort of suffering from, I don't know, a, a recollection and, and slightly reliving that stress and mm. the trauma of being Completely. on the walls at, at that point. But yeah, am I making this up? And, and that's not just for physical stuff as well. I mean, I, I remember in my house jobs, my, my grandmother died. And rather than thinking, okay, I do need to take a couple of days off. I just went on call and sobbed my way around the wards for a night mm. on my own. It's awful, awful, mm. but not, not recognizing that actually I would react in the way of other people. You're a doctor, you're slightly different. You're, you can handle it. Um, yeah. And, but then that, that was also the time, you know, I was not given compassionate leave to go to my granddad's funeral. So <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I know. had to swap, swap shifts and swap on calls to, to actually go and do anything. You didn't, yeah, you didn't get leave anyway. No. Those were the good old days, <laughs> weren't they, Maddie? We digress, we digress a bit. Right. So you're thinking, right, what is wrong with me? Because I, mm. I can't do anything. I'm really yeah. ill. Yeah. And then what happens? Yeah. Well, I ended up having a fever of 38 every single day for nearly, a, for, well, for over a year. So at the kind of 10 month mark, having gone through the infectious diseases people and kind of exhausted the the local routes that were available to me I went to I paid privately to go to a rheumatologist who took one look at me and put me through an MRI scanner and said no you've got ankylosing spondylitis at which point I transferred back into the NHS and they said oh yes yes you have here you go try some adalimumab so I'm now happily ensconced on that which has made the joint issues an awful lot better I am still very much struggling with the cardiac implications and I'm going back <laughs> back through cardiology a second time now to kind to to try and realize figure out what is going on because I'm still getting angina pains I'm still getting symptomatic tachycardias where I'm dizzy and faint and I can't reduce my evabradine, which controls my heart rate. Otherwise, my heart rate is 140 at rest. So we're still kind of figuring out what's going on on the cardiac side. So this is two years later now. I, in the space of that time, I resigned from my job with the online digital healthcare corporate stuff. They had, I have to say, been brilliant in terms of saying to me, keeping my job open for me and coming back when you're ready. But I felt that for me, I needed to, and this is where the big psychological changes started happening, I think. I needed to accept where I was now because it was very clear that I was not going to get better quickly. And having that kind of always comparing myself to that highly functioning you know, very busy, multitasking, very high stress job was really unhelpful for me because it just felt, I just felt like I was failing all the time. So I needed to cut free from that, I think, to accept where I was at that moment and, and organise my life so that that was okay. And Maddie, I mean, it's really interesting talking to you now because the 
a provisional title, I don't know whether it will stay it for this podcast, is how to create a way of living around a life I haven't chosen. Now, yeah. sometimes I interview guests and they're like, this is my story and I've been through it and it's finished and this is looking back, this is what I would have done differently. Like, you're right bang in the middle of the story still with yeah. all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. And A, thank you so much for being really vulnerable and coming on and sharing it. And I think it's just really powerful because there would be a lot of listeners that there might not be that many that have long COVID, but there will certainly be a lot of listeners that have chronic health problems that have had something dreadful happen or maybe recovering from cancer who maybe have had a relationship that has, this has finished and they find themselves not living the life that they might have chosen or something's gone wrong with their career or you name it life doesn't work out the way we want to in what I think your case is particularly extreme but I think for a lot of us there are things that that we would rather change and I guess the natural thing is to rail against it and I certainly know some people that some really bad stuff has happened to and they've responded in very different ways and someone mm. you know someone I can think of is still really railing against it and I think really suffering I guess taking that that second arrow as the Buddhists would talk about yeah the thing that's happened and then the the second lot of suffering is is really railing against the thing yeah. that's happened to them yeah and you said you know accepting where I was and making yeah. those lifestyle changes now that was just a sentence but I bet that was incredibly hard to do it was very hard to do because what that means is is getting really honest with yourself about what you need to make your life feel fulfilled and what brings you self-worth and what fills you up and I think before this illness I was very much driven by results so I worked hard I was kind of generally in a position of leadership where I had a lot of responsibility for other doctors as well as for patients I kind of thrived off that I thrived off the adrenaline and the kind of very fast-paced environment that I worked in and and coming down from that is really it's really really hard because you kind of then go okay right my life is now very slow because I physically can't keep up with anything else so where where do I find you know that those immediate kind of feedback responses saying yes you're doing well or yes you're you know aren't there anymore and what I realized is uh, that I found it very hard for my children and for my husband to be enough for me now that was a really tricky discussion <laughs> to have with my husband and it sounds kind of awful saying it now but I I felt the immediate feedback that you get from long-term relationships and from parenting is not immediate it's it's a very long time down the road and so for me that meant that I just felt like a failure as a mum and a failure as a as a wife for a lot of the time because there wasn't that immediacy in the feedback now neither of them neither of my children or or my husband would would say that I was a failure in any way whatsoever in that way but for my at the time I was all about results and information immediately so that had to change yeah so I think I've said in our previous conversation that it was that I had to really weigh up my need to achieve things for my self-worth versus my children's need to have a mother that was present because I didn't have the energy to do both I barely had the energy to parent my children to be honest so it, it was very difficult <laughs> And as you're saying that, I'm just wondering and looking back on my own life, thinking, actually, you know, I think sometimes we do kid ourselves when we are doing something that's taking a lot of emotional energy, working really, really hard. We are kidding ourselves that we are doing both really well anyway. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's totally diversionary tactics for me. I realized that, you know, I was just throwing myself in this to work to kind of avoid the hard stuff of that that real uncertainty and that vulnerability that that has to come with being a present parent or a present wife it's it's much easier to throw yourself into work and just kind of you know 
manage and just kind of wing the rest of it (laughs) yeah I mean it's about feedback as well isn't it Mm. we are very driven by and I love Paul Gilbert's work about the different zones that we're driven by there's your fear zone your threat zone your amygdala adrenaline there's the drive zone which is your dopamine achievement achievement and then there's your rest and digest your parasympathetic zone and as doctors we spend most of our time between driving driving and exactly and very little in this soothing place Mm. and in fact I use that compassion focus therapy idea within a lot of my coaching because we are terrible as doctors we haven't developed that compassion center that soothing center for ourselves very well so you know it is much more natural for us to to live in the drive and the threat zones as a mother I'm just speaking for myself now I can't say that the feedback I get from (laughs) (laughs) my family is always positive or encouraging no exactly and and this is the thing about parenting isn't it is that actually parenting is you don't say oh I'm wifing this evening or, <laughs> you, you know like actually it's a relationship isn't it it's not a job it's not it, and so you know you don't get you are not responsible for them not having meltdowns and they're not you know what you are responsible for is then working through that emotional development with them but it's very easy to kind of flick into that right I'm parenting this is my job you know they're having a meltdown therefore I'm not doing my job properly you know so yeah yeah <laughs> particularly with teenagers they sort of blame you for everything and you've been I don't know you've been speaking yes. to hundreds of people at a conference and you come in the door and someone has a go at you because their gym shirt isn't clean <laughs> it's like, yes can yes. I just go back to that really difficult job I was doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you're feeling stuck, short on time and need answers quickly, then you could try some self-coaching. Here's Dr. Claire Kay in episode 117 talking about how to do it. The biggest tip I've got about self-coaching is ideally is if you can write stuff down. So it's all very well going oh, what am I feeling? And then you go, well, I'm probably feeling whatever. And then you maybe come up with something, but it's all a bit willy. But when you've got to write the word down, angry or deflated or depleted or whatever it is, actually seeing it on paper helps you to think, gosh, why am I feeling like that? What is it about this situation that is causing me to feel this way? And so I think the biggest tip I've got about self-coaching is even if you only have five minutes, just write the question, the the answers down to the questions that you're asking yourself. And that creates huge change. And if you really can't use words, if you're not a wordy person, I do a lot of scaling questions as well with people. And so if you give scaling questions, are just giving yourself a mark out of 10. So you might say, I don't know. So if 10 is feeling really fantastic about something and North is feeling really awful about something, you might just start something about how am I feeling about this situation? And you might say, I'm feeling two out of 10. And then you say, well, what is it about this situation that makes me feel two? What does two mean to me? What would make it a 10? What do I need to put in place to allow that to happen? So if you're not a wordy person and you prefer numbers, I find that scaling technique really helpful. And I do a lot of that with um, my clients and it and it works really well and it takes two seconds. That's interesting. I love the idea of scaling, you know, naught to 10 or, or, or one to 10. Actually, some people say start at one because if people say naught, you've got nowhere to go. But if you start at one, <laughs> then you can say, well, why is that one not a naught? Are there any good things in there? Little trick of the trade. But I think that's really powerful because I think people are slightly put off stuff like this because of reflection and reflective practice. Mm. And in fact, I was reading a really useful article in the Harvard Business Review today, which I've put in our Facebook group, all about reflection and actually why it's so powerful. And people say all the time, oh, you should do journaling. You should mm. do reflection and stuff. And, and the idea of just journaling for journaling's sake, you know, I think of someone sitting down, you know, writing reams in a diary, you know, dear diary, this is mm. what happened to me today. But actually what you're talking about is a really amazing form of reflective practice that actually is going to be really, really useful. 
Yeah. And, and you know what I say to people is just in their diary to have like, you know, in your electronic diary on your phone, if that's what you do, is to have on the first Monday of the month or whatever day suits you, just literally your five minute check in. And then you would have it in different areas of your life and just say, you know, how am I? This is one of my favorite ones is just say, how am I doing? And out of 10, you would have your number. And if you're kind of you so, you know, starting off in January, you're an eight. And then suddenly by March, you're a five, then you're going to start to think to yourself, okay, hang on a minute. What's changed? Why am I feeling differently? What do I need to put back in place that perhaps was in place before that slipped? Or what else do I need to consider in this situation? You know, those sort of the kind of, and if you're stuck for a question, I mean, we will go through some examples of questions, I'm sure later doing a few now, but the easiest questions to ask start with a what. So whatever you're thinking, put a what in first, and it usually will create good thinking. It's just a nice open question, but if you can't think of how to start it, what is a great word? And pretty much you can stick what on the front of anything and you'll get a great coachy question. So, you know, when you see your numbers slipping from an eight to a five out of 10, you can say, what's going on? There's a nice what what question. And that just starts to shift your mindset. And you might sit there and your first reaction, particularly if you've got a piece of paper is, I don't know. And then you might say, well, what would help me to know? You know, even things like that, just just stick a, a what in front of everything and it can help to create new thinking. I guess that's a little bit like the five whys that they mm-hmm. talk about. You know, if, if there's an issue, I think this comes from sort of Japanese engineering, actually. So why, why have we had this issue? OK, well, it's because, I don't know, the paint didn't mix very well. Why didn't the paint mix very well? Well, I guess it's because it's got the wrong thing of lead to this or whatever. Why is that? Not that you use lead in paint anymore. Anyway, well, why is that? And then you keep going the five whys, but maybe you can have the five watts, you know? Okay, so what factors cause that? Okay, so it may be those factors. Well, okay, what led to that? And, you know, I love that. So asking the what questions. Another thing that someone said once, I think it was Dr. Karen Castile, because we've talked about self-coaching on the podcast Mm. before, and she's written the self-coaching handbook, which is fantastic, actually. There's a whole list of questions that you can ask really quite detailed questions. And she said, actually, if you haven't really got much time and you're really stuck, just sit down and write a list of everything you're stuck with and the questions that you can't answer. Just write them down that you really don't know the answer to and then sit down and answer them. Yes, exactly. That's interesting. So I tried it one day and you know what? It was really interesting because I did know the answer. There There was an issue with somebody I worked with and I was like, I don't know what to do about this actually. I did know what to do about Mm -hmm. it. It was, I was frightened to do what I needed to do about it. And then it was like, okay, so what do I need to do? How am I going to do this best? I always think in this context, there's somebody called Donald Miller, who's written an amazing business book called Business Made Simple. There's lots of little videos. I'd encourage anybody to check that out about how to sort of develop yourself. And uh, one of his little videos was all about stop choosing to be confused, which was, Mm really interesting it was a question that a coach had asked him once again he had a I think an issue with a really difficult employee and it's like I don't know what to do and the coach said you know exactly what to do that's not that's not the issue actually what you don't know is how to do it and there's lots of things that are stopping you doing what you know you really need to do mm-hmm. now do you think that's the case for most people when it comes to self-coaching that they sort of do know what they want to do but they're they're confused because of all these other factors yeah, definitely. And I think naturally we all have these blocks and and which might be fear, it might be guilt, it might be just, you know, that sense of avoiding doing something. You try not to think about the things that are hardest, but actually, you know, one of the best ways to move forwards is to look at the things that are most in, you know, the hardest bit for you. So if you're looking at something and actually going, actually, this is the bit I most don't want to address today that's the bit you need to address. And, but that doesn't have to be this sort of heartfelt, horrendous, traumatic experience. It could just be done in little bite-sized pieces. And I think that's really the key. Finally, wouldn't it be great to get to the end of your life with no regrets? In episode 123, Georgina Skull shares what she learned about having the confidence to make difficult decisions through writing her book, Regrets of the Dying. I think the thing that did did kind of surprise me was that there were stories in there where I thought people would really regret one thing and they regretted another. 
because I think humans have this wonderful capacity to reason stuff out. You know, because deep down, we know most of our decisions are made for really good reasons at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something to really keep in mind is that people regretted stuff. But but even though they, they say it's regret, they would also go, but that's what I had to do then because of this reason. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the case for most of us. I know for myself, like if you're or, you know, if you're in a job that you don't particularly like or a position in life that you don't particularly like, there's there might be practical reasons why you have to do that right now. But I don't think that should stop you from planning for something else. You know what I mean? Like working out an exit to it all. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably, when, I, when, I'd, when I'd finished all of the interviews, there seemed to be a pattern. I don't know if you found this kind of reading through, but I know writing it. And I think there was kind of like three main things that kind of made people create regrets as it were they were either trying to make other people happy they were trying to live up to the expectations of others so if someone saw them a certain way their parents or their partner or their whoever you know or and this one was the biggest one I think in my mind was kind of like us trying to rewrite history so the first chapter is a guy called Alan who was diagnosed with brain cancer in his late 40s. And amazing guy, work-class background, did really well for himself in business, worked incredibly hard, achieved a lot, but but kind of, I think the saying he said to me was, I spent a lifetime chasing this and creating all this money and status, and it took me six months to realise I'd wasted my time. Mm. And it was a slight, when he said that to me, I was like, oh my God. But, but, I think what it was, was that he was almost trying to rewrite where he came from, i.e. he was from a working class background, he didn't have much money, and he went, I'm going to have a different life. I'm going to set, you know, it's almost like setting the record straight. Mm-hmm. And I think we can do that in love as well. You know, if you, if we come from a, from parents that don't necessarily show their love for us, then we might try and chase relationships that aren't particularly healthy, that are going to, you know, we're chasing after love. We want to disprove what's happened before we're trying to rewrite what's happened and who people think we are and I think that happens a lot it's almost like a pendulum swing like it goes from generation to generation yeah like in its simplest form I suppose it's like if your parents were super strict then you and you have kids you might be super liberal and then when your kids grow up they might go back to being super strict again if you're quite like undo, you can see the negative points of what someone's done. Sometimes it's easy to see the negative points rather than the positive ones, I think. But, yeah. Um, Gosh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, you would think that generation after generation, we would just be becoming much better people, much better parents as we learn from the mistakes. But I think you're right. You do sort of just over overcompensate, don't you, with what you've lacked. And it just strikes me that a lot of these regrets like sort of not doing what you love putting work first working too much not having a good work-life balance not looking after your health it's where people seem to be just be stuck in a rut where they're just carrying on and carrying on even the whole putting work first it's almost easier to put work first than say put your family first or put your relationship first because Work will always come first if you don't make that stand, I think, a a lot of the time. So, again, that seems to be an act of omission rather than an act of commission. I I can't imagine anyone really, you know, being on their deathbed and saying, well, it's like that old adage, isn't it? No one ever said on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. (laughs) No one's ever on their deathbed going to go, I wish I hadn't taken that time to do that extended holiday with my family or I wish I hadn't made sure I was there at that time after school every single week for my child. Of course, you will never, ever regret that. But at the time, you're going to be putting lots of people's noses out of joint to be able to do that quite a lot of the time if you are in a job where in in order to spend that weekday evening doing that thing you have to put boundaries in and say no and disappoint people sometimes and I guess that goes into that that second thing about living up to people's expectations we seem to want to live up to expectations of our maybe our workplace or our profession or maybe even our parents 
more than we want to live up to our expectations of our of our nearest and dearest or even ourselves I don't know yeah no I agree yeah I agree in fact I was talking to a friend the other day and they've got a couple of different part-time jobs and one of them it's like you know you have three things and this is the one that doesn't really pay that well doesn't they don't really enjoy it it takes up the time but because a friend helped them get the job they're like well I feel really bad if I give it up and I'm like why would you feel bad like it's really nice that they got it for you, but it's not working out. So what, forever on, you have to do this job that's mm. not bringing you much money, is taking up your time. It's, it seems, it does seem crazy. It, it's almost putting other people above us. And, you know, with the workplace, it's like you go and work in a job and your bosses are really important and you want to impress everybody. And then you realise years down the line, you see them in the street and it's almost like, well, who are they anyway? I mean, it sounds really awful, but they don't really matter. Like the the, the size of they they are, the, the kind of space they take up in your life will, will will never be always that big. Like your kids will be that big, your parents will be that big, your your best friends and yourself will be always big in your life. But these other things are, are transitory; they're not going to be forever. So you have to make sure, I think, to keep things in perspective, and 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 also maybe remind yourself that. I mean, this is also one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book was that I think the, the drift that we experience in life is sometimes because we, we don't kind of face up to the fact that these moments don't last forever. Like our kids, they're only a certain age for a certain amount of time, you know, certain moments in our relationships with our friends or whatever are only a certain way for a certain amount of time. Everything's changing continuously. So to constantly put off and, and kind of, put everything else above that you know something else that maybe could wait or actually in the end of the day isn't super important even though it feels like it's super important at the time is 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 important to keep it in perspective and know that those moments are transitory and we have to really look at the collection of I kind of call it like the building blocks of our lives we have our relationships and we have our work and we have our friends and we have money and we have all these different things our health and it's you know, they all go to build up our lives. So all of them are important, but just at different times, you know, and we have to keep them in that order, in the order that works for us, not the order someone else wants them to work for us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now. <laughs>